0: God is God, and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. Those words sung by Stephen Curtis Chapman many years ago have echoed with a new resonance as you've tracked through some of the challenges that God has brought them through. Good morning. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 11. I want to speak this morning on the subject, God moves in a mysterious way. God moves in a mysterious way declaring faltering faith in a faithful savior, John chapter 11. We'll work our way through the text as I I preach. I want to begin with a couple of illustrations of challenging life experiences going back, first of all, in church history from 1731 to 1800. A man by the name of William Cooper lived. John Piper describes... The biography of this man as a life filled with one long accumulation of pain. His life was one long accumulation of pain. He was born in 1731 in Berkhamsted, England. His mother died when he was only six years old, leaving him to be raised by his father. Unfortunately, it seems he had a very unhealthy relationship with his father who may have also contributed to some of his difficulties by pushing him into a career which he would later abandon. The mental pain Cooper struggled with was primarily depression. He had four prolonged battles with it through his life. But in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his battle, his ongoing battle with depression, he wrote these words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy, and shall break in blessings on your head." Speaking of blessings, I take you to a more recent musician, Laura Story. She was a beauty pageant winner, attractive young lady in high school who married her high school sweetheart, Martin Elvington, and within two years, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And again, I leave it to you to track her life story and follow with her. But in the midst, again, of facing an uncertain future, and mystified in some ways by God's mysterious ways, she wrote these words. Her album cover is there on the screen. We pray for blessings, we pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need. Yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials, what if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise. John chapter 11 sets for us the final miracle performed by Jesus and selected by John with a very distinct purpose. The next slide portrays for us the list of seven miracles which John has selected. Many of you know that uh, we now have two sons-in-law. Our first sons-in-law, son-in-law pardon me, gathers evidence. He works in gathering evidence. Our second son-in-law presents evidence. And I would suggest to you this morning that John in his gospel is doing both things. There's a list of seven miracles beginning in chapter 2, and I just highlight them for you quickly. Chapter 2, Jesus turns the water into wine. Quality. Quality is the essence of that miracle. You remember as, as the wine was served to the master of the feast, he, he called the bridegroom over and he said, normally when people are this drunk, you don't bring out the best wine. <laughs> Why did you save the best to last? They had no idea, he had no idea what the servants knew that Jesus had changed the water to the, into wine. And then in chapter four, Jesus is back in Cana and this man, this nobleman comes, this stranger comes pleading with him for a sick child and without even leaving his location because distance is nothing to Christ. He doesn't have to be there in order to perform the miracle and he heals the old son. Then the lame man at the pool, the man for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus finds him there lying beside the pool and he asks him a very unusual question. He says to him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? 38 years with the same condition. And the man expresses to him, faith I have no one to help me and and Jesus performs a miracle Uh, time time is no issue to God God can change time perspective God can shorten the time God can uh, remarkably uh, accomplish all that he desires in the time he chooses then in chapter 6 the feeding of the 5,000 not only 5,000 5,000 men plus women and children quantity is no issue you may only have five loaves and two small fish, no problem, offer it to Jesus, see what, he, see what he'll do with it. I always wonder what that little boy said to his mom when he got home, did you eat your lunch? Well, mom, it's a long story. <laughs> John chapter six, later in the same chapter, walking on water, natural laws, nothing for Christ. John chapter nine, the healing of the blind man, and in that chapter, the disciples who come with Jesus on the scene of this blind man by the side of the road, they draw a a, a prompt conclusion. Lord, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There must be a reason. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened, this condition occurred so that the work of God could be displayed in his life. Some of you here this morning can testify that God's work has been displayed in a remarkable way in your life because of trials. God's mysterious way is to take the most profound difficulty and use it for His glory. And you cannot cope, you cannot go through what you face without God's help. That's God's design. It's It's a mystery. We wouldn't choose the trial. We wouldn't choose the difficulty, but God in His plan God in his sovereignty, God in his providence rules over all things and allows in our lives what he deems best for his glory. Now here in chapter 11, we have the raising of Lazarus. Let's begin in chapter 11, 1 through 3, as we see this sick saint. A sick saint. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Who's sick? Lazarus. Well, who is he? Who is this man? We have never met him before. This is the first time even in reading this gospel that we've encountered him. Who is he? His name like the name Eleazar means he whom God helped. What a great name. He whom God helped at birth, at birth his parents selected the name. A name with meaning. He whom God helped, God helped Lazarus on many occasions and this is but one of them. Has he helped you? Maybe all of us should have a name change at the end of the service. We could all put up our hands and have a lineup over here and have some legal representative help us add the word Lazarus. He or she whom, there must be a, a feminine version of that, right? He whom God helped, she whom God has helped, remarkably. Well, who, who is he? He, he's a man from the village, village of Bethany, and he has two sisters who are remarkably different. The one, I would suggest, she is just mentioned really in the background here as her sister Martha. Now, if we've been reading through the Gospels and we know in Luke chapter 10 that Martha is a worried worker. She is the Martha Stewart appropriate, eh, of her day. When people came, she was a consummate hostess. She wanted things done just right. And in that little account in Luke chapter 10, as Jesus comes to their house, uh, she is a little ticked off. Her sister, of all things, is sitting at the feet of Jesus while she's slaving in the kitchen. And she's not too impressed with that. And you remember her kind words to Jesus, Lord, tell her to help me. Tell her to help me. She is a worried worker. But the second sister this man has is a wholehearted worshiper. Look at verse 2. This Mary, you see Mary was such a common name, a very ordinary name. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now remember, you haven't read about Mary in the book just yet. She doesn't come up until chapter 12. The story of her devotion follows this event. It's remarkable, isn't it? This woman who takes a a bottle of perfume worth a year's wages and pours it on the feet of Jesus and wipes her feet with her hair This woman, she has a brother named Lazarus. Her her, her reputation had gone ahead of her. She is known, she is portrayed in Scripture for her 100% devotion to Jesus Christ. What have you done with your last year's wages? A whole year's wages on Jesus convicting isn't it challenging these sisters sent word to jesus lord and notice how they word it lord the one you love is sick not not the one who loves you although he did but lord lord the one you love is sick such a simple message such a short communication why tell jesus why tell Jesus? He's their friend. They're close friends. They know Jesus. He was a frequent guest in their home. He knows who they are. They know who he is. But as I remind you, take a look again at the next slide, where are we in the story of the Gospel of John? What do they know about Jesus? Quality is no issue. Jesus will do The very best. Distance is no issue. He doesn't have to leave his community to have an impact on my life. Time is not of the essence. Quantity is no issue. Natural laws are no issue. Misfortune is no issue. It's Jesus after all. If he knows, he'll act. If he knows, we know, we know him so well, we know he'll act on our behalf. I ask you this morning as I ask myself, how well do I know Jesus? Do I really know him? Not just know about him, do I know him? What will he do? Lord, the one you love is sick. They don't ask him to come. They simply present the basic information. Now, this miracle is given a prominent place in this gospel. This miracle will provide the basis for the accusation against Jesus. Jesus will have such an impact on people and on crowds that his enemies will take offense at him. This miracle will drive them from Christ while his followers will be driven to him. Isn't that remarkable? The same miracle, the same event, the same miraculous raising of Lazarus from the dead will drive believers in total adoration to Christ and drive his enemies to leave him behind. So What what happens? Verse 4, we have a silent Savior. Well, he's not silent in terms of what he's saying to the disciples, he's with those that he is training. Not all of them, it it seems. But some of those who will become the leaders, some of the 12 are gathered with him where he is. And he has something to teach them just as he is something to teach you and me when we watch others suffer and when we pray for them and when we offer up and say to the Lord, Lord, the one you love is sick. What does he say? Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. How did he know that? How could he say that? No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus is God's Son. He is God's Son. And how is he introduced to us in these verses as Jesus? Again, common name. As Lord, some scholars suggest that the first time the sisters send the message, it's simply a term of respect. It's not that he is their Lord. It's simply a polite, as we would say, sir, the one you love is sick. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. He has been and he will continue to teach those who are following him, But he's also God's son. He's also God's son. God is here. Hallelujah, God is here. But God is with the disciples where they are, and he is with Mary and Martha where they are, though they do not sense his presence. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that so that God's Son may be glorified through it. What is his perspective? I would suggest to you this morning that the perspective that God has on your life is different than yours. The perspective God has on your situation, your trial, your sickness, is radically different. You need, I need a change of thinking when I face a difficulty. And so I open up God's word and I get to praying and I ask God in prayer to change my perspective. So what is his perspective? His perspective, first of all, is that God's purposes include sickness. God's purposes include sicknesses. I wish some of those who fill our airways and television sets with teaching would study this passage more carefully. God's purposes include sickness. Secondly, God's glory is seen and will be seen through God's Son. That's the point of the book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how the book opens. John 1.1. John 1.14 says, and the Word became human. The Word, the eternal Word of God, took on human likeness. It's a miracle, it's amazing. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The Word became flesh and He pitched His tent among us and we saw His glory. The the glory in the Old Testament was veiled. It was hidden. There were layers and layers of curtains keeping people from seeing God's glory. But as you come into the New Covenant and God, Emmanuel, who is God with us, pitches his tent with us, we get to see him. We see his glory. So here's another occasion for God's glory. God's glory will be seen through this sickness. Has it been seen in your life through sickness? God's Son may be glorified. Oh, that's what we pray. We pray a lot of things when we pray for sick relatives and sick family and sick friends, don't we? But let's pray this. Pray that God's glory will be seen. Pray that God's Son will be glorified through it and in it. That's biblical praying. Then, lest we have any misunderstanding, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What a remarkable statement. He loved each of them, they're individually noted, they're individually cited as being recipients of the love of Jesus. But we come to a strange statement made to us in this account in verse six. He loves them, you cannot say this is punishment, you cannot say Jesus doesn't care as as suffering people often do, you can't say that, not in this text, yet, verse six, Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Explain that one. He he loves them, but he doesn't act. What kind of a God is that? Can your faith handle that? You see, that's the struggle. God is not some genie who appears out of a bottle and, and is, is, acts at our whim. God is God. Curtis, Stephen Curtis Chapman said it well. God is God, and I am not. I can only see part of the picture. He's painting. He's designing something. He's working something. I cannot see him, yet I'm called to trust him. That's the mystery of faith. Even when the darkness closes in, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the mystery that faith, God's grace, engenders in our lives. It's so radical. He heard that Lazarus was sick. He stayed where he was two more days. He does not act. He does not move. Yet, then he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Why now? It's too late. No, we are learning in this passage that Jesus moves at the prompting of his Father. Jesus is not under the authority of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, nor is he under your authority. He's under God's authority. He's under the authority of the Father. He's come to do the Father's will. So two days later, when the Father says, you may go, He says to them, let's go back to Judea. Notice their response. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? This is ridiculous. Why go back to a dangerous area? Jesus answered with a bit of a riddle, with some more questions for them. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Typically, the Jewish day was broken up into 12 equal portions. They're not exactly at the equator, but the day, the daylight hours, were divided up into 12 sections. Jesus said, are they not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Jesus is saying to the disciples, walk in the light. Walk in the light God gives you. Walk in the light God provides. God calls you and God calls me in the dark times to walk in the light. Let God, as it were, shine his perspective. Bring his light. Shine his light on your situation. Your word, the psalmist said, your word is a a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The, the, the challenge is, God may only give you enough light to take one step. Now I'm a planner, anybody a planner? Okay, and the others are agitated by those of us who are. All right, That's it. that covers everybody. And when you're planning, you like to be in charge, you like to know where you're going, don't you? You like to know the destination, you like to know how your day's gonna work out, what's, what's gonna happen this week, what's gonna happen this month. Have you ever had God change your plans? Anybody not have God change your plans, you just wait. Okay? That's life. That's the way a sovereign God works his plan. Walk in the light. After this he said to them, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus, verse eleven, has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. <laughs> the disciple said, Well, if he's he's just resting, of course, rest is good when you're ill, no problem. If he sleeps, he'll get better. This can't be that serious. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, so then he had to tell them plainly, has God ever had to speak to you plainly? I'm talking to you. (laughs) When God starts talking to you and speaks plainly, you get it, or he'll keep talking. He'll keep speaking until you understand what he is saying to you. So he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And again, here's the mystery in the text. Here's the mysterious ways reflected by William Cooper, picked up by Laura's story. Here's the mysterious way. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. What's the mysterious truth? God's absence is advantageous. Really? When God doesn't act, when Jesus doesn't come, that's for our benefit? Explain that one. What kind of a testimony am I going to have to my neighbors or to my friends or to my family who are watching me, perhaps I'm the only believer, some of you here today are the only believer in your family and you have skeptical neighbors and skeptical family and you're facing a trial and God put you on hold. What kind of a testimony is that going to be? He will provide the grace to keep trusting him. That's the testimony. Johnny Erickson Tata, teenager, dives into the waters off of California and ends up as a quadriplegic. And now in more recent years is battling breast cancer. What is her testimony? I'd rather be in a wheelchair with God than out of a wheelchair without him. Wow. That's grace. That's miraculous. The sustaining grace of God has met her in weakness. Did people pray for Johnny Erickson Tada? Absolutely. Did they ask God for healing? Absolutely. Are you about to say to her, Your faith is too weak? Johnny, if you just had more faith, read her biographies, read some of her struggles with this, and hearing the nonsense that has been passed off of many pulpits, And you'll realize the agony and the anguish of those who carry ongoing weakness. I'm glad I was not there. Jesus said that. So what happens? How are we going to move this forward? We have a sick saint. We have a silent savior. What's the strategy? What strategy will Jesus act on? What will he do in terms of his engagement, in terms of moving everyone forward? Everyone has to learn something. Martha has to learn something. Lazarus has to learn something. Mary needs to learn, the disciples need to learn. People living in Oshawa in 2014 need to learn from this. So what does he do? Well, before we look at that, notice Thomas, who is sort of getting it, says to the rest of the disciples in verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's all go and die with Jesus. Now, I don't think Thomas had the gift of encouragement. I I may have misread the text. I think he was a bit, I call him sort of an Eeyore disciple. You know Eeyore the character in Winnie the Pooh? You know, it's a nice day, but it might be raining later. You know, he's never happy. Thomas may be like that, but there's a bit of courage here. They're going back into a risky area. They're going back to face the enemies of Jesus. We're not sure. We're just left, and Thomas is, as it were, set aside until he encounters the risen Christ at the end of the Gospel. What a remarkable encounter that is, but we won't look at that today. So verse 17, Jesus now has begun his trip. He's back into the area and on his arrival, verse 17, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now the Jewish rabbis taught that the spirit of a person hovered over their body for three days so the fourth day meant for sure he was dead there is no doubt this is not resuscitation this is not a simple well lazarus fainted and jesus is 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 uh, waking him up out of a out, out of faint or helping him through that he is dead bethany was less than two miles from jerusalem and many jews Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. They are surrounded by mourners. Typically, the first three or four days were the most intense. The mourning period, the grieving period, lasted a month. If you had means, if you had wealth, you would hire professional mourners to grieve with you to demonstrate the weight of sorrow. They are there. They carry this burden with Martha and Mary, but what can they do? Except sympathize, which is important, which is necessary, but they're sighted. They are there. They are watching. Will they trust Christ? Let's see. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, verse 20... She went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So typical, isn't it? Martha can't sit still. She has to go out. Jesus hasn't even arrived. And she said, Jesus, I need to talk to you. Martha, Mary said, "I'll, I'll just wait, thanks. Totally different personality. Listen, we handle grief. We handle trials differently, don't we? We don't all cope the same way. When she heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. She has a few words for Jesus, I would say choice words. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. How do you read that? Is she chastising Jesus? Is she correcting Jesus? Is she complaining? Not necessarily. I, w- I would suggest to you, to you that her faith, though, is faltering. It's almost as if she's trying to say the right words. Have you ever tried to do that? You know kind of what you should say, but it's really not coming from your heart. You ever been there? Because you couldn't possibly confess doubt in the presence of others, could you? Well, you could if you are honest. I'm not sure I understand what God's doing. I'm not sure why this has happened. Listen, I get a little leery of people that claim to know why everything happens. Jesus said, to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, Lord, I have my faith down straight. I know the basic doctrines of the faith. I look forward, of course I know every faithful follower at the end of the age will be raised to life. That's truth. We all believe that, don't we? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. I'm not talking about a general resurrection at the end of history, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Have you ever seen that verse on a bookmark, on a Facebook cover, on the Internet, on a plaque on a wall? John 11:25 25 has been repeated and reprinted many, many times. And 26, what do most versions leave out? Help me out. The last four words. Do you believe this? Jesus can claim who, whatever he wants, but the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe who Jesus says he is? That's the issue every one of us in this room needs to answer this morning. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you're the Christ the Son of God who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and she called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, again, she's back outside. Mary is finally convinced if Jesus isn't coming to me, I'm going to go see Jesus. I need to talk to him. Jesus had not yet entered the village still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So here's this whole crowd. I mean, there's too many people. You ever been there? There's too many people. She just wants a private conversation with Jesus. Thank you very much. And the whole crowd of people are watching. And when she arrives, she fell at his feet. So typical, isn't it? She falls at his feet. She's worshiping. She's overwhelmed in the presence of Jesus. But she says the same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had also come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. What is bothering him? What is agitating Jesus? The fact that everybody's crying? No, it's the impact of sin. It's the impact of disease. Why, do, why are we in this mess? It's because Adam sinned, and death came into the world, and the weight of that which he will carry to the cross is settling on his heart. Oh, the anguish, anguish, of sin. Listen, what has it done in your family? What has sin done to your life, done to your marriage, done to your relationships? He was deeply moved and troubled. He doesn't, he doesn't even acknowledge, as it were, Mary's comment. Where have you laid him? Come and see Lord, they replied. One translation says in verse 35, Jesus burst into tears. The wages of sin is death. Why is there death? Because of sin, because of disobedience. Now, people misunderstand his tears as they often misunderstand ours. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, a little cynical, a little skeptical. Well, c- could it not he who, who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? This is his friend. If he can't help his friend, who can he help? Cynics. Religious cynics. They know everything, don't they? They know more than Jesus. They know more than God. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad order. He's been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What is Jesus saying and doing through these verses? First of all, he's comforting quickly, he's comforting the sorrowing with truth. He does not say, I know how you feel. He speaks truth into the lives of grieving people. He's, he, listen, if you allow him to, if you will listen, if you will heed the warning and challenge of our worship team this morning, be still and know that I am God. Be still. Okay, Martha, be still and know that I am God. Listen to what he's saying. What is God trying to teach you? Well, that's one of our lessons and Challenges as a family during these days. As we walked in recent weeks with Andrew and his diagnosed brain tumor and tracked with him his request that he and Jane wouldn't waste what God's trying to teach them. That's our prayer. What, Lord, what are you trying to say to us? What are we not understanding? How can we trust you? My faith is not strong, my faith is faltering but my faltering faith is in a faithful Savior. That's the issue. It's not how much faith I have. You, you could have faith as a grain of mustard seed. How much faith is that? Can you see it? If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, that's, Jesus said it's where your faith is located. Where is your faith resting? Has it found a resting place not in device or creed? I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So when when I go through the trials, I turn my attention again to the cross. I see, I don't doubt God's love because I know he declared his love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That's good news. So let's move this on as we close. What's he doing? Comforting the sorrowing of the truth. He's claiming victory himself with the truth. I am the resurrection and the life. He, he's in charge of what happens. In Revelation chapter 1 he says, I am he who lives and was dead and behold I am alive everymore and I hold the keys. Put your hand in the hand of the one who holds the keys for the future. That's faith, that's trust. And he calls for faith in the truth. Do you believe this? We'll come to that later on. So they took away the stone, here they are, the crowd of mourners are here, Mary is here, and now they've moved over to the scene by the tomb, and they're about to roll back the stone. And Jesus looks up at at this graveside and in simple declaring faith, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Notice these words. That they may believe. That they may believe that you sent me. I ask you this morning, what has God allowed in your life? Has your faith deepened through it? Do you believe more in Christ because of what he's allowed? Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Is that your testimony? Someone might say amen. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Why? Because he is Lord. He has conquered. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. What faith-strengthening exercises is God calling you today, to today? What faith-strengthening Strengthening exercises is God calling you to today? God calls you to believe in Him during the crisis when belief is most difficult. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Your word confirms what we each know through life experience. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. We dare to say thank you, God, for what you have allowed. And we pray that you would grant us grace, grant us the ability to trust you in the darkness. Thank you for the light of your word which you've provided for us. As we sing in response and declare our faith, I ask that you would stir up in our hearts a fresh love devotion to Jesus Christ. I pray that you would minister your comfort to those who this day are finding it difficult to go forward. Encourage them. Remind them that you alone are God that Jesus Christ is Lord and that what is being allowed in their lives is an evidence of grace and love despite the pain. So guide us in our response now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is king over all the earth. In April, as many of you know, we began a journey with our son-in-law as God moved in his life in a mysterious way. And just this week, we began another journey with our grandson as God moved in his life in a mysterious way. And Ruth and I cannot begin to thank you for your prayers and support through this time. We've been hugely blessed, and it is a privilege to be part of this church family this morning. But I know we're not the only ones. And I'm going to ask you to remain standing. The rest can be seated, but listen carefully. Remain standing if you are burdened today. With a situation, if you would just simply say by remaining standing, Lord, the one you love is sick. So the rest may be seated, but there's someone that's particularly on your heart. If you just remain standing, the rest may be seated. But someone you're really burdened, burdened for, some, you have some family situation, the rest may be seated. But there's someone who you are really concerned about. i just like us to stand and reckon, look around this room. There are so many who carry burdens. We're encouraged to bear one another's burdens, aren't we? And so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence with us this day. We thank you for the Spirit of God who takes truth as it is sung and preached and proclaimed and applies it into our hearts and lives. We recognize, O Lord, we are surrounded by family members, by friends, by those whom we love and whom you love who are facing difficult challenges. We pray for wisdom in knowing how to pray. We pray for guidance in knowing how to speak. We pray for your help from heaven. As the prophet prayed so many years ago, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Father, in simple, humble, faltering faith, we place our hands into the hand of Christ and pray that you would grant us the grace to go forward. We pray that you would move in the lives of our loved ones. Lord, many of these situations are not for a day or two, but have been long-lasting. But we thank you that your grace is sufficient your strength is made perfect through weakness. Minister in a mighty way. Bring glory to your name as you have promised. Glorify your son Jesus Christ. As we turn to him, we thank you that he is the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in him, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in him will never die. Lord, we believe this. We thank you for our Savior, our only hope, our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.